electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Frank, thank you very much. I'm Tyler Matheson. In today for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Got a busy hour, GDP topping expectations. Inflation continues to cool. So could the Fed be done raising interest rates from here? Our market guest says what the Fed does doesn't matter. He'll tell us what he's watching instead and how he's positioning as a result. Plus, all aboard the cruise rally, a beat and a bullish outlook from Royal Caribbean, the stock on pace for its best year in 20. The CEO will join us live for an exclusive interview ahead. And a busy day on earnings continues. We've got three more names getting ready to report this afternoon, autos, energy, streaming. Uh, So what to watch and how to trade the stocks into the print. That's all ahead. But we begin with today's markets and Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hey, Bob. Good to see you, old friend. And the question is, can we do it? Can we keep the string going on the Dow? 14 days. Right now, we're at the highs for the day on the Dow. Let's take a look at the major indices. Uh, Dow's being helped by McDonald's. Great report. Salesforce also helping there. S&P 500, we were at 4,600 just a little while ago. That would be a new 52-week high. That's holding up. Tech stocks holding up. Consumer discretionary, strong there. Communication services. NASDAQ being held up. Microsoft down, but most of the other big tech names up. Meta up as well. Big help there. There's been a lot of arguments about why the stock market can't advance. We've had all sorts of tailwinds, headwinds, excuse me, and basically the market has dealt with all of them. There's concerns about high valuations and oversold conditions. All of that is true, and yet the market continues to advance. We've had seasonal weakness, August, September, October, weak parts of the year. Nonetheless, market has advanced. And people have said earnings. Well, prices are high, therefore the earnings are going to have to be really good. It's going to be tough to impress and move the market forward. And yet, look today. Just look at the companies that have reported today. We have new highs on all the major reporters. Comcast, our parent company, new high. Meta, new high. Lamb Research. Royal Caribbean had an amazing report there. Look at that, up 9%. Bookings were strong. Textron and some of the other industrials also, well, that's a new 52-week high. So why exactly are we rallying? What is going on? I think the important thing is to note top stocks still strong earnings still enough to impress and the consensus is the soft landing is winning the day that's a major point here we said great economic numbers today fear of missing out is there and of course this broadening out story we keep talking about finally working where energy stocks material stocks uh healthcare also moving forward so where are we on this earnings story well we're about 42 43 percent through earnings season 220 219 companies reporting 80 percent are beating that's slightly better than normal Here's what's important. The average beat is almost 6%. If you go back prior to COVID, that's pretty good. Normally, the beats are 3 to 6%. So we're at the high end of the average here. Revenue beats are a little bit lower because people are having, corporations are having trouble raising prices right now. Finally, one important point here, uh, I want to, Tyler, look at the CBOB volatility index. We are below 13. That's a new multi-year low for the CBOB volatility index. Of course, lower volatility means a little bit less trading, but generally, generally, 
that's positive for stocks. Tyler, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. Bob Pisani. Uh, now, between yesterday's somewhat dovish commentary from Fed Chair Powell and this morning's better-than-expected GDP data, the case now for a soft landing seems to be strengthening. Steve Leisman has a closer look now at some of the numbers. Hey, Steve. Hey, Tyler, it's like the U.S. economy stared 525 basis points of rate hikes from the Fed in the eye and deadpanned. Is that all you got? The government reporting this morning strong GDP, jobs and business investment numbers, buttressing the case for the soft landing outlook, but also raising questions. Does the Fed maybe have to do more here? I'll get to that in a second. Let's look at the numbers. GDP 2.4 percent. We were hoping it was just going to hold on this quarter, uh, but instead it accelerated from the first quarter. Uh, Jobless claims ticking down, continuing claims ticking down. So no sense that those who are losing their jobs aren't finding them. Durable goods business investment inside that doing better, 4.7%, beating the estimate by a long way. Over capital economics, they wrote the 2.4% annualized gain in second quarter real GDP growth, which means the economy expanded at close to its potential pace over the first half of the year, suggests that higher interest rates are having remarkably little impact. As Fed Chair Jay Powell said yesterday, the Fed staff now no longer forecasting recession with concerns receding about bank credit tightening. Powell yesterday came out squarely in the middle on future hikes, not tipping his hand either way about what the next Fed move would be. Probability of a 25 basis point hike, 24% for September, 40% for November. That is pretty much unchanged from yesterday. And there's the market at 61% banking on a cut next spring. By definition, folks, an economy growing at or above potential is not creating slack to bring down inflation. And yet the GDP report showed inflation ticking down. So it could be potential, at least for a temporary period of time, maybe is higher than believed workers coming back into the workforce, maybe Tyler, and supply chains opening up. Does that stronger than, than maybe expected GDP number make the Fed's job tougher? It would if inflation didn't wasn't also coming down. Mm-hmm. We've had some very positive reports. Now, some of that inflation coming down, Tyler, as you know, is base effects rolling off. So we'll have to see. Um, you know, I thought Powell was decidedly in the middle on all, a lot of this stuff. He's waiting to see what happens. He wants to see these inflation numbers come down. But inside this GDP report were several inflation indicators, all of them coming down. Some of them, however, remaining much higher than the Federal Reserve would still like. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, We appreciate that. The commercial real estate sector overall has felt the impact of rising rates and tightening credit, but the retail segment has been largely insulated from that pain thanks to a resilient consumer, and that's helped Kimco Realty to better-than-expected earnings this morning. The company is the largest publicly traded owner and operator of what are called open-air grocery-anchored shopping centers. Tenants include TJX, Whole Foods, Home Depot, among others. Uh, Shares slightly lower today, but up double digits over the past couple of months. For more, we welcome back our friend and CEO, Connor Flynn. Connor, welcome. Good to have you with us. Nice to see you, Tyler. So nice quarter here. Uh, Everybody seems worried about commercial real estate, but not about you and the sector you're in. Why is that? You know, it comes down to fundamentals. I think when you look at supply and demand right now, there's been over a decade of virtually no new supply. And demand is very, very strong across the board, not only for the anchor spaces, as we saw with Bed Bath & Beyond. We've replaced multiple Bed Bath & Beyond spaces this quarter at 31% higher rents than what they were paying before. And then on the small shops as well. 
That's one of my big takeaways this quarter is the strength of the small business, which is really, you know, the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. That continues to reach all time near all time high occupancies in our portfolio, which is a good indicator of, again, the small business environment of many new businesses opening in our shopping centers. What kinds of retailers went into those rather big box uh, Bed Bath and Beyond locations? You know, it's amazing that the diversity of demand is, is incredible. When you look at the the, the the tenants that we executed leases with this quarter, it was a many off-price retailers. So TJ Maxx, Marshalls, HomeGoods, HomeSense, Burlington, Ross, Nordstrom Rack. You also had groceries expanding. So Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Sprouts, Albertsons, Kroger. Uh, you've got crafts growing as well with Hobby Lobby. You've got, you've got um, sporting goods growing with Dick's Sporting Goods and their, and, and their multiple concepts. It's really remarkable to see the health and wellness component, again, continue to expand. You've got fitness. You've got medical. It's, it's a nice way the shopping center continues to evolve because it's really all about convenience. And more retailers as well as medical users want to be closer to where people live. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, that's an interesting point you make about the medical users. You do see many, many more of these um, medicenter or urgent care centers popping up in, in shopping centers like yours. Let's talk a little bit about higher interest rates and how, if at all, they have affected you. I note that you have uh, very little or maybe even no debt coming due for the remainder of 2023, which I guess is good news. That means that you don't have to roll anything over into higher rate loans uh, anytime soon. So how's it affecting you? Uh, how are those rates affecting you, if at all, and your customers? Sure. Higher interest expenses is, is a reality across many industries, including our own. We're fortunate where we actually are at the lowest leverage the company's ever had. And we have no debt maturing this year, as you said, which is wonderful. That being said, next year, we will have to refinance coming due bonds at higher rates. And we feel like we, that we have ample amounts of liquidity to handle that uh, we sit with over $500 million in cash on our balance sheet right now, which is the most we've ever had. So we're, we're in a position of strength when it comes to the, the interest rate environment. It's a reality we're dealing with. Fortunately for us, the fundamentals, again, the, the, the strength in demand, the growth in, in net operating income continue to be robust. And so as our interest expense can, it rises with the refinancings, we should be able to push through that and have some growth as well in earnings as, as we look for, for higher same-site NOI growth. I come away from our conversation here feeling two things. Number one, that you think the consumer is very healthy. That's one. And, and number two, the rumors of the death of retail stores was exaggerated. We are in a new paradigm in retail, no doubt about it. It's become, I think, crystal clear post-pandemic that we were a net beneficiary of really what consumers went through in a very challenging environment. They want to shop locally, they want convenience, they want value, and you're seeing huge demand for those locations. Now with virtually no new supply, pricing power is squarely in the camp of the landlord right now, and Kimco is really benefiting from that as multiple drivers, not just retail, but as we said, medical and other users, are looking to get closer to where people are living, and that's really benefiting our portfolio. Connor, looking at all the people behind you, it's clear that you run a lean shop. There is a, <laughs> tell those people to get to work behind you. Connor Flynn, thank you, my friend. Good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right, seven-year notes up for auction. Rick Santelli doing what he does, and that is tracking the action at the CME. Hi, Rick. Hi, Tyler. Not a pretty auction. This is the last leg of 120 billion of coupon supply from the U.S. Treasury in the form of 35 billion seven-year notes. The when issued market was trading around 407 and a half. The yield at the Dutch auction, 
4.087. It had a collie tail, as we say. Uh, and of course, when you have a higher yield, that's a lower price when you compare it to the when issued market. And by the way, 4.087% on a seven-year is the highest yield at an auction for a seven-year note since they brought it back in 2009. And as you look at the chart, you can see that it's moving higher in yield. Messy auction. I gave it a D as in dog. But also, look at 10s as we get ready to get very close to 4%. Looked like on my screen we just missed it, and we're at the high yields of the day. Uh, and real quickly for the auction, the metrics, you know, the indirect bidders, the foreigners were, were pretty good, uh, and the bid to cover was pretty good. Where it really went off the wires was, on the, off the rails, was the pricing component and direct bidders like pensions, hedgies, uh, insurers, which has been the high watermark on many of the auctions. That was at the lowest level since August of last year. But here's the issue. There was stories earlier, Tyler, about how regulators continue to look at maybe raising capital requirements for large institutions, banks. Well, what would they do to raise capital? They'd probably sell treasuries. So in addition to the rough auction, right around 11 o'clock Eastern, when rates really started to move higher, those were some of the headlines that were spooking many of the investors selling treasuries. Back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Well, Jay Powell acknowledged the overall economy's resilience yesterday, and he did leave the potential for further rate hikes on the table. Uh, but our next guest says the Fed is a total non-starter, no matter what happens with rates, and that liquidity is what investors should be paying attention to. For more here, let's bring in Keith Fitzgerald, principal at the Fitzgerald Group. Keith, welcome. Good to have you with us. When you say liquidity is something that uh, we should be paying more attention to, why do you say that? Are you concerned about a lack of liquidity in the market or what? Well, it's actually an interesting contradiction. It's the opposite. I'm concerned about the amount of money that's in the markets. Not the classic sense of the term or the definition that matters. It's how fast and how far people can leverage up or deleverage as rates come and go. It's become a very sophisticated, computerized-driven marketplace that poises, poses a lot more risk to the average investor than people understand. So how do I get my, hand around, my hands around that if I'm an average investor? What should I be watching specifically? Well, it's ironic because this is the greatest opportunity I've seen in the last 30 years. You have the opportunity as an investor to focus on the basics. You can get a very short list of great companies putting up great numbers. When in doubt, zoom out is an expression we use with our folks around the world. And I really mean it because if you engage in battles, Wall Street cannot pick you off. If you are an investor, you stick to your numbers, you're disciplined, you're calm, you take a deep breath. The day-to-day -day noise is not going to bother you when it comes to a great company like Apple or Microsoft or NVIDIA or McDonald's even. They're going to put up numbers. As an investor, over time, that's going to work in your favor. Let's go through a couple of those, of those companies that you call great companies that have been doing very well. McDonald's is one of them. It is. And, you know, it was off my buy list for a long time, but it's recently back on it. I've just picked up additional shares personally. This is a technology company that happens to make hamburgers. Every kiosk they put in improves their order, their accuracy, their square foot profits. You know, the fact that they're growing sales internationally, there's a long way to go with this one. And it's a sign that the consumer is actually very, very strong. And uh, NVIDIA, which is uh, really a market darling right now. Well, it is, but it's also a long-term favorite when you think about the themes that we're living through in today's world. 
AI is not going back in the bottle. It is at an inflection point. I think we're going to see this develop on par with the introduction of penicillin, the introduction of electricity, distributed generation. This is the kind of stock where they control 80 to 90 percent of the marketplace in their respective areas. So this is a company that I think a few years down the road, investors who don't own it are going to be kicking themselves. You say the the Fed is is fundamentally kind of irrelevant in this market. What makes you come to that I don't know whether I'm overstating what you are saying, but but what makes you come to that conclusion? Well, again, it's you know, it's the Fed is is clearly got a tough job on its hands. But I maintain that they are as wrong about rates and labor as they were about transitory to begin with. The reason why I say they're a non-starter is that the markets have taken matters into their own hands. The liquidity that I spoke of has nothing to do with what the Fed is doing. The Fed can raise rates until the cows come home, as evident by the GDP report this morning, and still not fix the problem. This is a fiscal issue that stems from the other side of the government. Yeah, and the Fed is, is uh, I guess you would say, pulling back on liquidity to the extent that, they, that they're, that they're uh, selling off uh, securities and reducing their, their balance sheet. Yeah, they are. And, you know, again, that's the sort of classic economic model. But the liquidity that I'm concerned about from an investing standpoint is the use of leverage by mm-hmm. high-speed, low-drag, computerized traders, dark pools, et cetera. The rise of passive investing, funny enough, has contributed to this because every time there's a major change in rates, many of the leverage traders have to either buy or sell to avoid their margin calls. And that screws with all of the markets. All right, Keith, thank you very much. Uh, Joining us on the phone today, Keith Fitzgerald of the Fitzgerald Group. Coming up, the CFPB is at the center of lawmakers' efforts to crack down on so-called junk fees in banking and elsewhere. But like most things in Washington, it's not without some controversy. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia, Senate Chairman of the uh, Subcommittee on Financial Institutions and Consumer Protection, will join us next to discuss that and more. Plus, it is the busiest day of earnings season With nearly 100 companies uh, reporting results, we'll hone in on three key names for the consumer ahead. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The uh, Senate holding its first hearing this week uh, on junk fees and whether the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has the authority uh, in any way to curb them. These charges include credit card late fees, overdraft fees on checking accounts, banking accounts, surcharges even on ticket purchases, which cost consumers tens of billions of dollars every year. Our next guest says that while fees help fund some critical services, some are excessively high and exist solely so that large corporations can pad their bottom lines. He also says these fees are disproportionately hurting lower-income Americans and people of color. Joining me now is the chair of the subcommittee leading the charge, Senator Raphael Warnock, a Democrat from Georgia. An individual has the distinction, I suppose, of having won the same Senate seat twice in little more than little less than two years. Congratulations, Senator. Thank you very much. Representing the people of Georgia is a high honor of my life. We're very happy to have you with us. You know, I don't think anyone would dispute the idea that, that bank fees are nettlesome and, and, and concerning bank and other, other fees, and not just bank fees, that these so-called junk fees are, are troubling, and particularly to lower-income individuals who may not qualify for the kinds of banking or checking accounts that are sort of no fee. But my question for you, Senator, is... Where and why does the federal government have the power to come in and intervene in a matter of pricing? Isn't, uh, isn't that sort of just price controls that you're talking about? The, the, uh, thank, thank you for the question. No, the, the government has, has a role to play and a responsibility to protect consumers. And that is something that I remain laser focused on as chair of financial institutions and consumer protections. Uh, for the Banking and Housing Committee for the United States Senate. Uh, consumers deserve to know what they're paying for. Uh, what we're seeing in too many industries is a kind of bait and switch. And uh, consumers very often are told one price only to discover there's something else and below that there's something else, which by the way reduces competition. Uh, and so the ways in which this is a drag on the total marketplace on our economy while at the same time slamming ordinary consumers is a real concern, and uh, we're very focused on doing something about this. I certainly see and, 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 and am sympathetic to the idea that transparency is critical here. People need to know what they're going to be charged for. Uh, but, but can't consumers, if they are uh, dealt with transparently, can't consumers in effect protect themselves by shopping around and shopping for the lower fees, shopping for the, for the bank that doesn't charge $3.75 for using an, uh, one of its competitors' cards in its own ATM. We, we are seeing this across uh, several different industries. I will give you one example that in, in the Atlanta market and in other markets, as the, many folks are, are, are renters, uh, dealing with the issue of affordable housing, and there's not a lot of housing available in the first place. Uh, they apply, and there's a fee attached to that, and, uh, and then they find out that what they think the cost of the rent is actually not the cost of the rent. And by that time, you're already hooked in, and you're talking about uh, an economy where the average American doesn't have $400 for an emergency, and literally people are being trapped uh, where they're already on the hook, and getting, getting out of it is not as easy uh, as you suggest. And uh, too many landlords know this. 
and they're playing games with the consumers. I'm, I'm and curious. And we have an absolute right I'm, and responsibility to do something about that. I'm curious because I'm unfamiliar with, with the, the scenario that you just described. I, I understand that there may be fees for a credit check fee or an application fee when somebody is applying there, for. There for, are fees. There, there are fees being charged to tell you that we're getting ready to charge you a fee. Yeah. And uh, uh, this, this, this is a drag on the economy. Not only is this the, the right uh, addressing this in order to protect the ordinary consumer, not only is it the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. This is adding no value to the American economy at all. And the federal government uh, and uh, local governments, state, lo state and local governments, uh, have, have a, a, a long tradition of protecting consumers. The, the public sector uh, has a role to play and the private sector has a role to play. And uh, we want to see competition in the marketplace. And in order to encourage that competition, consumers need to know what, what they're on the hook you, for from the, from the very beginning. You mentioned, I think, that there are occasions where renters don't, where the rent that they think they're paying isn't really the rent they are going to pay. Uh, so there's confusion right. there. I, I, I don't understand how that happens. Give me an example of, of how and well, why I, I, that I can, happens. I, 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 I can tell you that the Attorney General uh, of the state of Pennsylvania, who testified in the hearing yesterday, uh, has had to go after bad actors uh, in that space. What we have seen over the last few years uh, is a lot of the housing, uh, of course, being purchased uh, in uh, Georgia and other markets uh, uh, by private equity. And, and it's not everybody, but there, there, there are bad actors in this space uh, who are preying on vulnerable uh, people and getting out of this uh, mm -hmm. and then uh, getting, getting in a rental unit and then finding that it costs more than they revealed in the first place through pages and pages and pages of documents. Mm -hmm. Then moving your, your family uh, to another unit, that's not easy. Yeah. Uh, uh, to, to do, and they know it. Let's switch. And uh, uh, when you're seeing when you're seeing this kind of of, of failure rate, uh, there's a degree of intentionality in that. Let's let's turn uh, the page on this. A fascinating topic. I know we'll be coming back to you more, for more on it as as the uh, discussions continue. But I want to ask you about uh, securities trading and ownership by members of Congress and high government officials. Uh, where do you come down on that? I'm told my notes indicate that you are not an owner of individual corporate securities uh, yourself. Where do you come down on whether uh, trading in individual company securities or fixed income securities issued by individual companies uh, ought to be banned for members of Congress? Yeah, I think that the American people uh, deserve to know that when their members of Congress are voting on one issue or the other, uh, let's, for example, the one we were talking about, the issue around fees and that kind of thing. The reason why I'm able to speak and a clear voice about this is is that I'm not owned by any of these companies, and I don't I don't I don't own individual stocks in those corporations. And so when I make decisions about what we ought to be doing to protect consumers, I'm guided by what's best for the people at home, and I'm not thinking about how this will impact my own pocketbook. And so um, um, it's it's about conflicts of interest. It's about transparency. It's about making sure that the people who send us here to represent them can be assured that we are representing them, that we are thinking about them, that we are centering their interests uh, as so, we make important decisions about 
uh, a whole range of issues. Just to button it off, uh, Reverend, uh, do you think that, that your colleagues in Congress should practice what you preach, and that is not own individual uh, corporate securities? I am hopeful that we're going to bring a bill to the floor of uh, the United States Senate and uh, force people to vote on this issue because uh, I, I think when you when you when you look at it uh, in the light of day, uh, clearly uh, we want to make sure that that the representatives of Congress are representing the people, and uh, I think we ought to be forced to vote on this issue. And 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 you would vote in the affirmative of the, on that kind of ban? Oh, I, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I've Senator, thank you so record. much. We're, we're out of time. Fascinating conversation. We'll have you back again soon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Keep the faith. Yes, you too, sir. Uh, Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Still ahead, fears of a drawn-out freight recession are weighing on the transports. But one company, a key indicator for that market, says a rebound is right around the corner. The details are next when the exchange comes back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The payment processing company, Wax, does business with truckers and fleets across the country, and that's uh, uh, giving them some unique insight into the freight recession facing the market. Christina Partsenevelis spoke with the Wex CEO on the heels of the company's earnings and joins us now with the highlights. Hi, Christina. Hi. Well, let's talk about the company right now because shares of, like you said, the payment processing firm are down about 1% lower today, even after it raised its full-year revenue and earnings per share guidance. The company, uh, just to recap, provides payment processing and consulting to commercial and government vehicles vehicle fleets. So they're really exposed to the auto industry and trucks, of course. And so in the second quarter, they did see a substantial drop in fuel prices, which contributed to the 10% year-over-year drop in Wex's mobility business. But I was able to catch up with Wex's CEO, Melissa Smith, after today's earning call to learn a little bit more about this freight recession and where we are in the cycle. Listen in. We're hearing from our customers as they feel like we're at the bottom of that and that we have a couple more quarters where uh, that will continue to impact the freight marketplace and then reset next year. So just a couple more quarters, but definitely more optimistic about commercial shipments. Melissa also told me they saw strong volume growth from their travel-related customers, including many, many travel agencies, which really echoes the bullish commentary from Royal Caribbean today, Visa, American Express. The list continues. The American consumer just wants to travel. But back to Wex. Wex also making news, announcing they'll invest $100 million in electric vehicle technology, which sounds like an odd match because Wex is a payment processing firm, but it has a lot of exposure to the space. We have over 18 million commercial vehicles that we do business with today. We know that those customers want to have an integrated bill, which tracks both their gas-powered vehicles and their EV vehicles. And so we're working on products associated with that. 
They'll be looking to give out millions to about 10 to 15 early stage startups focused on fleet electrification, EV charging, and similar technology just uh, until the next few years, 2025. Ty? All right, Christina, thanks very much. Christina Partsinevelis, appreciate it. All right, let's go to Bertha Coombs now across the way for a CNBC News update. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Tyler. The House Judiciary Committee will not hold Mark Zuckerberg in contempt. Today, Chairman Jim Jordan said the decision was based on Facebook's newfound commitment to fully cooperate with the committee's investigation. But Jordan added, added that contempt charges could still be revisited if the company fails to cooperate fully. The Nigerian army says it will not resist forces seizing power in an armed coup in that country. Meantime, two U.S. defense officials said that U.S. forces are on restricted movements while officials assess the situation. The U.S. has more than 1,000 troops throughout the country who have been tasked with training and supporting Nigerian forces. Niger has been a key partner in the West's fight against Islamist groups in that region. NBA legend LeBron James offered a positive medical report on his son, Bronny James, saying everyone doing great. James thanked everyone for supporting his son after he was rushed to the hospital in cardiac arrest on Monday. The All-American and top NBA prospect is an incoming freshman at the University of Southern California. And we are certainly going to wish him well, and it's good to hear that he's doing better. Yeah, absolutely. Bertha, thanks very much. Coming up, Ford, Roku, ExxonMobil on deck with results. We've got the action, the story, and the trade next in the earnings exchange. Be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Rounding out a big week of earnings with three consumer-facing names. We got the action, the story, and the trade in our earnings exchange. Starting with Ford, the automaker up 25% this year, but facing a lot of headwinds. Tough rollout of the uh, electric F-150 leading to price cuts there. Labor negotiations looming this fall and, of course, fears of a weakening consumer. Boris Schlossberg has the trades today. He's BK Asset Management Managing Director and a CNBC uh, contributor. Boris, welcome. What do you think of Ford? I think, you know, there's a, definitely a lot of reason for why there's so much angst uh, against Ford right now, because the, the EV rollout has really not gone as fast or as smoothly as they hoped. Um, some of the figures I heard reported is that it cost them as much as $65,000 per unit of loss until they get up to scale on the EV side. And of course, all of their plans really rest on the F-150, the Ford Lightning, the EV version really becoming a, um, a flagship model. So that's going to be the big key tell going forward. And I think, you know, a lot of it really depends on the on the consumer because right now, basically, Ford Blue, the ICE part of it, and Ford Credit is what's really financing all of this investment into EVs. And they need a very strong consumer, very strong demand for all of their regular vehicles for the next year going forward before they can really show some operational uh, changes um, in the company. So to me, this is very much kind of a belt and suspender type of a stock. I would not want to own the stock unless I could buy a put and maybe sell a call a little bit of, uh, ahead of it to finance it, because I do think there's a lot of risk here, especially the UAE um, negotiation with the auto workers could be a very, very big problem for them if it doesn't go smoothly. All so right, yeah, I, I think it's 
definitely merits some worry here. That sounds like a stay away for now. Let's go uh, on to well, Exxon. Shares are down 4% this year uh, as the energy sector lags following its two years at the top. Uh, analysts expect right. Exxon's earnings to fall uh, by about 50%, roughly mirroring Chevron's pre-announcement earlier this week. We'll also be watching right. for guidance and commentary on prices, demand, and its acquisition of Denbury. Boris, your thoughts now on Exxon. So I think long-term, this is a great hold. And um, basically, if you're looking at the oil market, of course, obviously Exxon is going to see some drawback because of oil uh, went down. But oil is pretty much stabilized. And it's pretty realistic to think that we're now in a 65-85 range, which is very good for producers because, first of all, they have you know um, understanding of cash flows. They have an uh, understanding of market going forward. And I think um, the fact that Exxon, of course, is such a dominant force in the sector, I think it's $400 billion operations everywhere in the globe, is going to keep it very much at the forefront. It's a dividend aristocrat, 3.5% yield. I really like this stock to maybe 120 over the next six months. Um, there's a couple of possible um, uh, wild cards here that could really play its way. For example, in the Ukraine war, if there's some kind of a um, vacuum leadership in Russia, that's certainly going to create a lot of turmoil in the oil market. If we have a very cold winter uh, with natural gas in Europe, that could also help the energy producers. So to me, there's upside uh, to, uh, for them quite a lot. And the downside is really capped at this point. All right, Boris, let's move on now and uh, finish up with Roku. Uh, up nearly 80 percent this year, but still well off those 2021 highs. The company expected to report a loss, but with Meta's positive commentary yesterday on uh, ad revenue, there could be some hope here. But remember, the media industry is dealing with strikes, ballooning costs, and uh, those will be a key factor for Roku and its profitability uh, as we right. move forward. Your thoughts on Roku? So Roku, I think, is an extremely interesting idea. You almost have to look at it as a venture capital investment. If you're not willing to lose half, you really can't touch the stock because, as you said, it has no earnings and it's a very speculative play. It is definitely the darling of ARC because, um, because of its um, interesting technology. It's basically trying to do something unique in the streaming space. It wants to make shopping he um, wants to make ads shoppable, which is something that nobody has ever been able to do. And if they can achieve that, that could really revolutionize the whole business. Basically, I think the metric that everybody's going to be looking at is something called monetization per hour. Right now, it's pretty much factored in around three pennies per hour. And if they can get it up to 10 pennies per hour by 2026, it could be massive, massive revenue run for them. So the, so the estimates are anywhere from $4 billion on the bearish side to $30 billion on the uber bullish side. That's why it such a, has a huge such upside potential. Making ads shoppable would mean something like seeing an ad for Skechers and being able to buy it with my clicker. On the spot, on the spot. And it, of course, it creates impulse shopping. It creates a whole new interesting that just basically takes ads from being just a persuasion medium to being a transactional medium. If yeah. they can succeed, I think, you know, the, the sky is the limit here. But that's a big if, and that's what everybody's going to do. A holy at. grail for media companies indeed. Boris Schlossberg, yeah. thank you, sir. Right. Appreciate it. Coming up, we'll look at another name set to report. That would be Intel. Worst stock in the SMH Semiconductor ETF since March of 2020, down 30%, while the fund has tripled. That's not the side of the trade you want to be on, but maybe you do now. Shares getting a bit of a reprieve as of late, though, up nearly 20% since the last report. What to expect after the bell is next. Intel reports after the bell today. It is the first chip maker we will hear from this earnings season, giving investors a first look at how uh, AI mania has impacted semiconductors. That's the focus of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. Hi, Dee. 
Tyler, there are concerns that that AI mania may actually be coming at the expense of Intel. The calculus is that more GPUs, the likes of which NVIDIA makes, could mean less server chips. That's Intel's bread and butter, and that has Wall Street cautious ahead of earnings tonight. We've already heard from Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, Snap. CapEx costs, they're going up as they spend more money to make sure that they take advantage of new AI opportunities. Much of that will come in the form of cloud infrastructure upgrades to support compute power needed for generative AI. But as Susquano wrote earlier this month, the data center spend may shift money to GPUs, leaving less for Intel's traditional chips. And guys, as a side note, it is kind of amazing that almost every big tech AI story this week points to one clear beneficiary, and that is NVIDIA. That said, though, Pat Gelsinger's big turnaround plan rests on Intel becoming a player in Foundry. That is the manufacturing of chips for other companies. So as megacap tech looks to bring silicon in-house, and NVIDIA and other chip makers look to diversify their supply chains, Intel is hoping to be a player and win their business. Even Jensen Huang himself said a few months ago that Intel's test chips look, quote, good. That was in Taiwan. Still, it is early days for Intel's ambitions as a manufacturer, and it's largely been met with skepticism from the street, though shares, as you can see, Tyler, underperforming the broader chip space this year. And in the immediate future, at least, the AI boom could prove to be more of a threat to the company. All right. Deidre Bosa, thanks very much. Deidre reporting from San Francisco. John Fort will speak with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger shortly after those earnings are released, and you can catch part of that interview coming up at 7 p.m. on last call. Still ahead, shares of Royal Caribbean popping on blowout earnings and a massive guidance hike. The company seeing strong demand despite record prices. CEO Jason Liberty will join us to discuss the results next. The exchange will be right back. the exchange, everybody. It has been smooth sailing for cruise stocks this year. So smooth, in fact, that Carnival and Royal Caribbean are the third and fourth best performing stocks in the S&P, respectively. Shares of both have more than doubled, while Norwegian has gained more than 80 percent. And Royal Caribbean is only adding more fuel to that rally, with shares up nearly 10 percent on blowout earnings, record revenues, and a big full-year guidance hike as demand remains hot despite record prices. For more, here's Seema Modi and Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty. Seema, take it away. Tyler, thank you. And Jason, welcome back to CNBC. A great day to have you on. Thanks, Seema. Great to be here. Uh, we saw that strong beat and raise today. Your stock is clearly responding up over 9%. I guess what Wall Street is trying to figure out is whether this is the early innings of a longer-term rebound in cruising. And if so, what do 2024 bookings uh, what do they look like at a time when a lot of economists say that is when consumers will really start to slow down? Yeah. Well, well, Seema, I, I think there's a lot of things that we're seeing in, the, in these bookings. So the vast majority of the bookings that we've been taking for some time are really bookings for 2024. So the, the rate in which the bookings are coming in are substantially higher than what we saw pre-COVID and at rates that are significantly higher as well. So that really bodes well for the outlook for 2024. And of course, we're having millions of interactions with our customers each and every day, and we see what their spend behavior is and, and, and their ambitions to travel um, going out. So we feel really confident about the consumer, not just because the demographics are in our favor, not only because with our consumers, where, where they are in terms of their wealth and their leverage, but also it's, it's really driven by a pretty still a significant value gap to land-based vacation. While we're closing a lot of, uh, some of that this year, 
there's still a lot of runway in order for us to be in a competitive position to land base vacations. I want to dig in on that point. How much runway is there, Jason? Because you're increasing prices on your cruise customer at a time when hotel rates, airfares have come down over the last couple of months. Uh, do you plan to continue to increase prices and by how much? Yeah, so, so it, I'm, in the earlier part of this year, that value gap was somewhere around 45%. Uh, percent. And, and today, we've closed that, that value gap by about 10 percentage points. So we still think there's a lot of runway um, that is still there to close. And the way that our pricing environment works, it's very dynamic, and it's based off of um, you know, as, you know, you know, changing prices uh, back and forth and looking at how demand is coming in. And what we see is that we continue to take on bookings while rising pr- raising prices, as well as getting our customers to book all of their onboard activities well in advance. And we know that if we can get them to spend a dollar before they get on the ship, we'll get them to spend somewhere around 70 cents on the dollar more um, when they get on and and enjoy their vacation experience. I know to to capitalize on growing demand that you're seeing right now, one of the questions you've been been asked uh, is just how many more ships you're able to bring to sea quickly, right? You have three deliveries this year, but perhaps the most anticipated debut is the Icon of the Seas, which is set to sail in January of 2024. I think we'll be on it. But, you know, more importantly, how many more ships are, are coming up? Yeah. Well, first, you know, I'm sitting in our innovation lab, and this is actually the location where we design incredible ships like Icon of the Seas. Um, and we really see in, in all the different markets and segments that we play in across our brands, we actually see a lot of uh, momentum in demand for us to be able to grow moderately. You know, our goal and our formula for success, moderate yield growth, good cost control, and, and, and growing our business in a moderate way. And, and we think that all, of, all three of our brands and their segments that they lead in uh, can certainly take on more demand as they source guests from all over the world. Jason Tyler Matheson here. You, you were talking about a term of art, which I think is the value gap. And, and I'm curious there, if, if I'm understanding correctly, that would be the difference uh, in price between a comparable land-based vacation and what you offer uh, as, as a cruise vacation. Don't you want to maintain a value gap of some, of some magnitude to attract, to attract people and, and keep your demand up? Well, I, I, think, I think we always want to be um, as competitive as we possibly can be, Tyler. Um, but, of course, you know, we want that gap to be uh, much smaller. We were able to close that gap to about 10 to 15 points pre-COVID. I mean, we think that there's a lot of opportunity for us to, uh, to close that gap even further. Um, and you're seeing that in some of the actions that we're taking um, with more short product, um, bringing up incredible destinations like Perfect Day at Coco Cay uh, that is helping us compete with land-based vacation. What are you seeing in terms of customer desire to return to Asia? We heard from United Airlines and Delta, Jason, over the last week saying they're going to expand international routes. Yeah, well, well, well certainly, you know, Asia Pac has been uh, the one area of the world that has been a little uh, slower coming back online post-COVID. And so we, we are also seeing really strong demand trends across our brands um, to go out and explore Asia as well. Um, we also next year are planning on, on deploying again out of China, um, which we, you know, we were the leader in that market pre-COVID. And so we have a ship um, that's going to be deploying there starting in May of 2024. Well, we look forward to continuing to track this journey. Uh, Jason, great to have you on today. Jason Liberty, CEO of Royal Caribbean. All right, Seema, thanks very much. Thank and thanks to uh, Mr. Liberty as well. And that, folks, does it for this edition of The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, we'll get a read on the strength of the consumer with the CEOs of Travel and Leisure and Crocs. And let's take a look over in the other studio. There's Courtney getting ready. I'll join her on the other side of this break. We'll be right back.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.